Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about Jean Dielman, 23, Key du Commerce, 1080 Brussels. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing well, Sam. Happy uh, 2023. Well, Barrett, that's the only time we're going to say the the full title of this movie. Otherwise, we'll just call it Gene Dealman. Um, although I will say this is not the longest title of a movie we've had on Video Store because technically Dr. Strangelove has a longer title. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, uh, but thankfully, both of those you can... You can also shorten to uh, to a to a name. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into anything with this movie, I'm going to put a disclaimer at the top of this, and we should probably do this. I mean, I think this should be assumed, but I want to say this specifically for this movie. If you intend to watch this film and haven't yet, I want you to stop listening. I want you to go watch the film first. Um, I think this is a very challenging film to watch. Uh, and it's challenging in ways you might not expect, but I think that the film and its director, uh, Chantel Ackerman, uh, deserve your time and attention. Um, if you approach it with an open heart, it earns its 201 minute runtime. Um, and I really do think that this film oddly can be spoiled in lots and lots and lots of ways. So if you have any interest in like, oh, that, that movie, I've heard about this now. I want to see that. Don't listen to our conversation until you go watch it. It's very watchable right now. It's on the Criterion channel. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it in lots and lots of ways. I think you should watch this movie. So I'm going to just say that up top because we're just going to talk about this. And I went in completely blank to this movie. And I'm so happy that I did. Um, So I just wanted to say that uh, up top. Yeah, Sam, I would definitely uh, agree with you on that. It's, It's a really... Um, it's a unique experience. And uh, if you can possibly set aside three hours and 20 minutes uh, to let the movie work on you. Um, yeah, it will. It is definitely worth the uh, the investment. Yep. And 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 give it your undivided attention, put everything away, just focus on the screen and because it's going to it's going to bait you into wanting to turn away from it mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. some ways. But but it pays off in every possible way. So that being said, Baron, I'm not going to ask you your history with this film because I know that you just watched this uh, for the first time, but I am curious when you became aware of this film. Yeah, that's a really good question, Sam. I'm trying to think about that because um, it, it obviously was something that when I started, you know, teaching film 15 years ago, it's certainly a film I, I read about and um I, I, and I remember actually several years ago when I really wasn't ready to give it three hours and 20, 21 minutes, I actually did start it on the Criterion uh, channel and uh, wasn't didn't have the time at, the, at that moment to get into it. But so, yeah, I've, I've been aware of it for maybe 10, 15 years, probably just uh, in, uh, you know, reading film criticism or film theory and seeing references to it, uh, but just had never taken literally the time it takes to investigate it. So, so what did you know about this film going in? What expectations did you bring into this viewing? Yeah, so I, I knew that it was a film that was going to focus on um, on a very uh, ordinary life. I, I knew there was a twist. I didn't know what the twist oh, was. Oh, you did? Okay. I, I, yeah, I, I knew there yeah, was I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah, but I, to, to, to be frank, I had no idea what it was. So it didn't didn't really matter. But I but I knew there was a, something of a twist. Um and I knew that it was an example of uh, what was some, is sometimes called slow cinema. Uh, and, and I knew in particular, for example, the idea that, you know, we watched her make meatloaf for however long that took. That was That's an example people often bring up, you know, four minutes to make a meatloaf or whatever. So I knew that there was going to be a lot of um, domestic, ordinary domestic events defic- depicted. I had no idea of how it was going to be structured. Um, I, I had no idea what kind of repetition there would be. Uh, but I went into it knowing that it was going to be um, a very slow film. I, I, I knew that. Yeah, I, and I and I I knew that part, and I, I knew that like because I had seen images of her peeling potatoes at a table, and I'm like, okay, this is this mm-hmm. is what this is going to be. Um, I didn't know where where it was headed or like this movie when I was watching, it could have just ended with the end of day three. And and it's mm-hmm. just like, okay. And, and honestly, that would have been rewarding. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been a different film, but it would have been, it would, I wouldn't have, I, I feel like this movie has such an interesting kind of amazing ending 
Yes. But it's not the kind of thing where it's like, well, if not for that ending, what are we doing? Like I, I was on board with this project, uh, in day one, uh, you know, I, uh, but it kept, it kept being rewarding in interesting ways. So before we get into the film itself, you know, we're, we watched this at this time, uh, because of what we talked about in our last episode, our last episode, we talked about the 2022 sight and sound list and how this movie leapt up from, I think something like 34 to number one. Um, and I'm curious, having seen this movie now, how do you think that ranking will affect this film? Obviously the film is the film. The film doesn't change, but the discourse around it, uh, because I, there, there's two things that I thought of when I was thinking about this. For one thing, I think more people will see it and seek it out. You know, if, if, yeah. you, if any, if any semi reputable body says this, this tops our list, this is number one, people are going to go see it, which I think objectively is positive. If more eyes are brought to something at the same time, is is the number one ranking sort of an albatross around the neck of this this film in particular any film but this film in particular um i think about the way people in my generation or younger sometimes talk about a movie like citizen kane because that's often you know afi that's number one on both lists it's been number one in sight and sound for so long and i know people when the first afi list came out people my age went out and watched citizen kane and sort of had this sense of like this is the greatest thing, you know, like, like, I don't know that they were able, some people, some of us were, but I think some of us also approached it. Like, why is this, you know, the, the number one on this list. And I think that can sometimes be an albatross. If this was number three, it wouldn't, it, it would still draw some eyes, but it may not have, um, this is a complicated movie to be number one. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's a really good point, Sam. And um, you know, one thing one thing it made me think about was you had asked in our last uh podcast, you had asked about the methodology of of, of the system that uh, sight and sound uses. And it and I have to say, even though I, I love this film, I think it's a great, it's a great number one, it does make me wonder, you know, as we talked about the way that sight and sound does it is every critic does their top 10 and then they just add up who got more votes, that's number one. I think it'd be really interesting to do it the other way. You know, what would happen if you took everybody's number one? Would this mm-hmm. film still be number one? I don't know. Um, but the idea of it, of number one being an albatross, I think that's a, it's a, it's a mixed blessing, right? Because you're right. On the one hand, I've heard that so many times from people who say, well, I thought Citizen Kane was the greatest film and I watched it. And I'm like, what's the big deal? Well, well, part of I think part of what happens with it with a number one, and this is true to me of Kane, and it's true of this film. It's not really true of Vertigo. I think that you really need um, a sense of film history in order to understand why it's a big deal. So that's why I always say when people say why is Citizen Kane a big deal, I always say watch the disc that has um, uh, Ebert's commentary on it. Because when you hear somebody telling you, putting the film in its historical context and drawing your attention to film techniques that have become so common because of Citizen Kane that you don't even know how revolutionary they are. So I was really pleased. I was looking at an article that Laura Mulvey, the great feminist critic, wrote about Ashan Demon uh, several years ago. And she said she saw it in 1975 at the Edinburgh Film Festival. And she said it felt as though there was a before and after Jean Dielman, just as there had once been a before and after Citizen Kane. Mm. And I do not think there's a before and after Vertigo, even though I love Vertigo. I, I think this film is a much better heir to Citizen Kane as a number one, because just as Citizen Kane in many ways redefined what a Hollywood film could do, Jean Dielman has redefined what an art film can do. And so I think even though it's, even though its impact is not quite as obvious as Kane's, once you start looking, you realize, yeah, she really opened up a whole different way of film to look at people's lives that wasn't done before. Nobody does it exactly to the degree that she does it here, but but if you look at a lot of, uh, of films and a lot of filmmakers, they actually take the same approach to time and ordinary events as she takes in this film. So that's where I think it's not, it's, you know, it, yeah, maybe it's an albatross, but it's also helps maybe people better appreciate different ways of making films 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've kind of answered my next question, which is I wanted to know if you thought this was, I mean, forget number one, but is this like worthy to be in that conversation? I'm far more interested in like, what are the movies Mm -hmm. that are in the conversation? Um, You know, I'm just going to throw out things you've already talked about Kane vertigo i think tokyo story is mm-hmm. um i would put 2001 in that conversation yeah. uh, do you think this is a this is a worthy um worthy to have a seat at the table for that conversation oh i think absolutely sam because i think what this film really raises questions about is what do we look at what do we not look at what do we consider important what do we consider not important in fact one way of thinking about this film is it's it's kind of an heir to an heir to neorealism uh, you, you know, you and I both really like bicycle thieves, right? But, but think about bicycle thieves as an approach to quote reality versus this film's approach to reality, right? I mean, very different. Bicycle, bicycle thieves is, it's a great film, but it's a very compact 90 minutes. And the whole idea is, what you do in that kind of neorealist film is you hit all the highlights, right? You hit all the drama. But what is interesting about Jean Dillman is you are, you find the drama in different places. You don't necessarily find it in these uh, in these highlights. You find it in the rhythm of everyday life. And as uh, I found, I found an interesting one of the Criterion extras is an interesting interview done on um, uh, I think it was French TV right after the film came out. And uh, Delphine Seyrig, uh, the uh, the star of the film, says, "You know, there are uh, at that point three three or four billion people on the planet. So you've got a one and a half or two billion women for whom this is their life for many of them. And yet that is not something that we see on film. So I think the film, the film raises really interesting questions about what is art and what is the relationship between art and life? Uh, and I think those are, those are huge, huge questions to think about. And that's why I think this film really, really opens up a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting territory. So it was not already clear. I loved this movie so much. Um, and and I'm trying to exactly feel like, like explain why. And, and the best I can say is that it vibrates on a frequency that I feel tuned into, like almost from the beginning when you're watching her in the kitchen, there's something about it that it's not, it is mesmerizing to watch in a certain way because it, she's not, talking there's no voiceover there's no monologue there's very there's like four conversations in this whole mm-hmm. um you know mm-hmm. in in this whole movie but there's something about watching her and and i i will honestly say this like and maybe this goes to the before and after <laughs> i feel like i like i live my life differently since i saw this and not like i not even like philosophically live my life differently, but there was a moment, um, you know, we just celebrated the holidays. I was cooking and I started to think about Jean Dielman. I was setting the table and I was, when I set a plate down on a placemat and I heard the sound, I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, this is the sound of that movie the, I am doing some of these repetitive activities. And it made me think about her. Uh, and it made me think about the, this, this film, like, like th- it has, instantly seeped into my life uh in ways and 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 that's like i said there's some there's some frequency that this movie's at that i vibrate at and i there's lots of movies that i love that i don't feel that way about and this one again within day one i was already feeling that and already feeling excited so here's my my thing is like i wish that i had seen this before the 2022 list came out because part of me feels like well am i saying that because i'm trying to justify i don't think this is true but am i saying that because i'm trying to justify this as number one what i want to know is if i had watched this movie a year ago when i made my top 10 list why i put this on there because now i feel like i think i would but i but i but is that because it's already there and that's something i mean we can't we can't you know unring that bell but i'm <laughs> curious cuz like this movie has excited this is a movie i've talked with about talked about to so many people in the last couple of weeks but it's also tough because i tell people it's like but you got to know what you're getting into like like mm-hmm. this is going to be very long and in some ways not a lot is going to happen Boy. but like but it's magic this yeah. movie yeah <laughs> you know, I, yeah, that's, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I think the, que- it's, a, it's an interesting question you're raising, Sam, because I know what you mean, like, and I do think, to be honest, the fact that it's number one made me, uh, 
maybe both open to watching it, um, you know, taking the time, but also it, and partly this is because we're doing this conversation, but it made me think more about it. It made me want to read more about it because I thought, well, if enough people voted for this to make it number one, uh, it must be great in a way that is not immediately apparent to me. And to me, I mean, that's always my experience as you and I talk about film. And I, we watch a film, we think about it, I read about it, and often my appreciation deepens. And that's exactly the way that it's been for this film. Like, I keep going back to it. I keep thinking about, oh, now I see how that was working, you know? And and so I, I do think that that's where the fact that it's number one kind of keeps me paying closer attention in some respects than maybe I would have otherwise. So I was so so as I was preparing this, instead of writing a lot of questions, instead I was like, okay, let me try to figure out why do I love this movie. So I made a list of reasons. So the mm. first reason, uh, and and this will be no surprise to anybody who's listened to this podcast, I love the look of this movie so much. I there there are there are a lot of um visual choices that are made. Yeah. Um I love that it nearly nearly all of it takes place within this apartment. Um, so we get to explore this apartment in lots and lots of different ways. We see almost not quite, but we see almost every room from, from almost every square angle that you can. Um, and it sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it's not till the third day you see a room from the fourth point of view that you hadn't seen yet. And I was like, Oh, this is in, like, this room looks different and I'm, I'm interested in it. So we explore that space, which made me think a little bit about, uh, the middle act of contempt, where again we're exploring a um, now, now it's, it's done in a very different way, but yeah. I, I loved that part of contempt, and that's exploring this space as a place that two people are competing in in a kind of way. And this is watching her in this, you know, in this particular space. Now, again, visually, it is shot locked down in these like perfect squared up, which. Yeah. Of course, when we think of Tokyo Story, it's like this is this is uh, a very different movie than Tokyo Story, but it's shot like that movie. And I loved the way that that movie looked. Um, so that was that just kind of blew my mind. Think because I because I remember watching Tokyo Story and saying, like, I wish more things looked like this. And then to watch this and say this, mm -hmm. in fact, looks like that. Um, and then you get just these long shots, which are interested in time and space and routine and process, um, which made me think of now, this is a, this is a weirder stretch, but, but I'm just going to, I'm going to just compare it to another movie that I love, even though they're not at all alike, but I mentioned earlier, 2001, there's something about 2001, which is this long mm -hmm. process kind mm -hmm. of quiet. Um, and it's and the reasons I love that. And the reasons I love this are related to each other. So it's in some ways, this is a domestic 2001 shot through Tokyo story or something like it's, I loved the way this movie looked. Well, you, you said a couple of things I want to, I want to pick up on, uh, Sam, um, Chantal Ackerman, uh, uh, said that at one point she thought when she was younger, she thought that Fellini and Bergman were the greatest filmmakers. And then she says she no longer thought that after she, uh, saw some other films because she said they are not dealing with time and space as the most important elements in film. So I think, I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, and I, and I was a little disappointed that I didn't find more people uh, referring to Ozu in, 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 in the, with this film. I think part of it was because um, Alkerman was influenced by a, a late sixties, early seventies phenomenon called structuralist film, which we can talk about later, but I did find at least one reference to an interview where she said that she did love Ozu. So I, I really think that to me that seems obvious that because with both of them it's and she holds she holds the camera even longer often on the space, but for both of them that's the whole idea that time and space are fundamental uh, to to the film experience. The other the other connection I'm glad you know, you mentioned contempt. Um, one of the turning points in her film and her experience was when she was 15 years old. She stuck snuck into the cinema into the theater to see. Um, uh, Godard's Pierre Lafou, uh, which Pierrot Lafou, which came out in '65 when Chantal Ackerman was only 15. So I was curious. So I watched Pierrot Lafou, which is one of uh, Godard's films I had not seen. I watched it yesterday, uh, and first of all, I would recommend it if you want a Godardian experience. That's that's it's tending towards late Godard, so it's 
pretty weird. But anyway, um, in the film, there's a there, the, there's a part where Jean-Paul Belmondo is talking to Anna Karina, and he says it's too bad that um, life can't be like film. Life can't be like art. And I thought, so to me, that was, to me, that may have been one of the things that triggered her thinking about how can film be more like life rather than the other way, the other mm. way. Yeah. 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 Uh, and one, one other Ozu thing that, that, that is consistent between these is the shot of a room before somebody enters and after they leave that, that there is this sense that like the camera is set up. We see her coming. We know she's headed to the room because we know the space, you know, so we'll often see her walking down the hallway from the kitchen. And then we cut to the the dining room, living room, and we'll see her walk in, do something. We'll see her walk out. So we see that it's like we see the room, the space before we see the person in it. Not always, but there are lots of shots like that. So the second reason I love this movie, sound design. Um, there is. Uh, the only music is diegetic. There's two times they listen to the radio. So yeah. you hear that um, uh, beyond that. It is, <clears throat> it is not a silent movie because there's a lot of sound in this movie. And as I mentioned, the sound of a plate getting put down on a table, I mean, all that stuff is heightened because it's the only thing. And because you, you wait so long for something to happen or to hear something, you end up paying attention to, uh, to sounds so much. Um, so, so you, what you end up with is the naturalistic sounds of her work, her life. Um, and I think that is, uh, I'm trying to think of, we, I feel like we've watched other movies that have this same feeling where you get this heightened sound design because it's, it's stripped away. Uh, some of those other things are stripped away from it, but I couldn't, I couldn't think of a specific example, but, um, but that really is one of the things I, I saw. I actually rewatched this movie yesterday and that was one of the things the second time through, I really noticed was how much of this was, how much the sound design um, affects my viewing of it. Yeah. It's quite a bit of uh, both when she's in the apartment and when she goes to the cafe, you get traffic, you get traffic mm -hmm. sounds um and and also of course the other thing about the sound design is when something like a very key incident when the when she drops the spoon mm -hmm. um that's that's cataclysmic yes uh because and, there, and there's and you don't get any and I, I love that you don't get any musical cues to tell you how to feel mm -hmm. you know what i mean and, and a lot of and a lot of films in the last 30 years have gotten away from that so sometimes you watch old hollywood films and you feel like oh i really need the music to tell me how to feel um, but I, but I love the fact that, um, just hearing that spoon hit, uh, we get, we get the impact of, of that. Absolutely. Um, third reason I love this film, uh, and this is something we talked about when we were talking about the three colors trilogy, this movie teaches you how to watch it. Um, it is this built into the structure of this film that you have these, what's interesting is you have on title cards, three days, but in reality, day one is midday, day one to midday, day two. When mm -hmm. you see everything, you see like the, the the platonic ideal of her day where kind mm -hmm. of nothing goes wrong. And mm -hmm. you're seeing mm -hmm. this is all of the structures, the the um, the patterns, the processes that she goes through. Um, and so one of the cool things is that the movie uh doesn't explain anything it just starts it, it when yeah. the movie starts she is in the kitchen at the stove heating it up um and i forgot and it wasn't until the second time through that i realized her first client is the second thing that happens mm -hmm. um and and you know uh and and but then we we move on from that almost almost immediately yeah. um and you so you learn her patterns her routine you learn her precision that there is this like precise nature to things again you know, if I think about how she takes out plates and sets them down, how she sets a table there, that, that, that there's a control she has over her world um, in, in that first day. And it is about kind of precise movements. Um, I think if you are a person who uh, have has tendencies towards sort of obsessive compulsive type things the first hour of this movie is almost a dream it's great right it's, you're just watching everything work um uh and uh and then it also teaches you to slow down right it teaches you to be like this is going to take time you know so when she is um when she is setting the table when she's cooking when she's doing anything um 
the movie in that first day is telling you like, pay attention, pay attention. Um, not because this is a puzzle box where everything is going to mean something, but when you get to the second hour of this movie, the attention you paid in the first hour pays off because you start to notice patterns breaking. You start to notice what an imperfect day looks like, you know, what, what, and, 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 um, yeah, like yeah. So, so I loved. I think the first thing you notice that goes wrong is when, after her second client comes, she puts the money in the the thing and doesn't put the lid back on. And just like you're talking about with the spoon dropping, I was so troubled by the lid not being put back on because yeah. you have watched her be so precise for so long, and you just and I and at first my first thought was, well, I can't believe Ackerman let that happen. Yes, and then and you think. Oh no 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 no! This is this is meant to happen. So you realize how precise the director is too. Yeah, yeah that's exactly yeah, yeah, that's exactly what you were what you were getting at, Sam. When you say that the movie teaches you how to watch a how to watch a movie. Um, I mean, I've had I I had conversations with a friend who's not particularly movie savvy, but he's been surprised. You know, I've said to him, everything that happens in a frame is there for a reason. Uh, so and and it's like that should be a principle when you watch any film but but with this film you're not quite sure because you're thinking you know when she left the lid off the terrain my first thought was well you know i don't know that happens you know i i mean and that happens i mean you you go to do something and you don't close the drawer and that but but then but then i know the next thing i noticed was her hair her, her hair was messed up and then, of course, and then, and then you get her son telling her she, the house coat's unbuttoned, and you start to realize, yes, these are these are these are signs that something is not right. And then, of course, what Ackerman has done is she's created a bit of a mystery, um, and that is, well, why isn't it right? You know, what's what's gone wrong? You know, Ackerman, and I, I do not have OCD, but I'm a very routinized person, so I I, I enjoy routine, and so uh, there's a there's a sense in which routine is both a source of great comfort and control. And it can also be a source of anxiety, right? When it gets, when it gets disrupted. So Ackerman said that um, she, she based the, she based the film on the observations that she'd made of the women in her life as she was growing up living with her aunts. Um, But she also connects it to, um, to her Jewish upbringing as well. And she she sees ritual as both kind of something that you do on a daily basis, but also it can be an expression of a kind of religious devotion. So it helps to explain why the ritual is so important to her, uh, to Jane, Jane, because that is really her source of meaning uh, in her life, is to be able to follow out those routines uh, flawlessly. It's interesting that you say that 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 you know this comes from her observations as a child of the women in her life because that was the other thing that felt that I loved about this movie is uh as a as when I was young a lot of my I I have one sibling and a lot of my cousins live far away things like this so like I would spend a lot of a time a lot of time with adults mm-hmm. and I remember a lot of childhood watching adults do whatever their adult thing was and this sort of feels like that. And, and, and part of it is also um, the, the like sometimes boredom you feel as a kid when the adult in the room has to do something so they can't entertain you or talk to you. And it's like, you're just there watching them do this thing. And you realize like, Oh, there's a, there, they know how to do this thing. Somehow, somehow they know how to do these things. And cause they're not explaining anything. They don't seem concerned about what they're doing. They're just going through the motions of doing these things. And there's something so comforting about that. But there's also this sense as a kid, that's how you learn how to do things too. You know, it's like, you could, you could watch, um, you could watch this movie and make how, and learn how to make like coated veal because you see her do it. And it's like, <laughs> I've made dishes like that. It's like, yep, that's when she started to get the stuff out. It's like, Oh, I know where she's up to. She's going to do this. And um, you know, and, and, uh, and, and I think that's so interesting. Even things like here's another way that this movie has impacted me in a weird way. So I'm sure this is not what Ackerman was going after, but like I, when I leave a room now, uh-huh. I shut the, I, I shut the lights off. And if I don't, I'm like, she shut the lights off. I should shut the lights off. Like, like, why am I not shutting the lights off? Why am I like, you know, or, or honestly, you know, as a parent, I'm like, man, I should show the first hour of this movie to my kids. Be like, this is what it looks like to clean up after yourself. She does this, watch her, 
you I mean you when she cooks you then watch her clean that table off yes yes watch her do the dishes you watch her clean the tub and all that stuff is so she doesn't shortchange that stuff she you know that's like this is part of her day and this is an important part of her day uh you know and and what's interesting and you know we can talk about editing in this movie too um the the things we don't see are the the first two sexual encounters, which seems like, well, that's what movies would, would be about. And it's like, well, those aren't there, but I sure watched her do the dishes and I sure watched her clean that tub. And that's, that's more interesting to me as it, like, I didn't, if you had asked me, which is more interesting to see, I wouldn't have picked that. But in reality, it's like, well, that's actually the thing that was really interesting to watch. Yeah. It's almost like, okay, I'm glad, I'm glad we, you know, they're going into the bedroom and they're closing the door time passes. They come out. That's great. So, so you, so she elides the very thing that most other films have, of course, absolutely focus on. Um, yeah. I appreciate the fact that she cooks the way I cook, uh, the way I was taught to cook, which is you clean up as you go along. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I like that. And uh, yeah, I, I remember. It, yeah. So when she first brought the meat out, I was like, Hmm, I wonder what that is. I think maybe it's veal. I'm not really sure. So yeah, it's, you're right. Those, those things become kind of um, uh, just fascinating in, in themselves. Once you figure out that there's a rhythm here uh, and it is, it is the rhythm of real life. And so again, there's this notion that what happens in real life is actually important and valuable and to be paid, to be paid attention to at the same time, not to get too ahead of ourselves on day three, we see that time becomes a problem Mm -hmm. Uh, because once, once you get thrown off of your usual routine, I mean, I experienced that today. I slept, I, I overslept by about half an hour. And, and I got up and I was like, well, now the day's kind of thrown off. Now I can't do what I usually do when I get up. I've got to kind of adjust the whole day around it. And it really is a little, a little disconcerting. And I try to tell myself, oh, it's okay. I'll enjoy having a different rhythm to the day. But in fact, I end up feeling just kind of like off all day because it didn't start right. So you can see that happening with, with her for pretty significant reasons, actually. Yeah. And, and it took me a while to realize why she kept going into the bedroom to look at the clock. And then yeah. I realized, I think that's the only clock. Yeah. And, and so, so she kept going back in there and, and I realized like she is having the exact anxiety you're talking about, which is like, there is not time or how am I going to make this work? She's again, this is where I'm vibrating with her is like, she's constantly doing math in her head of like, what do I have time for? I need to get this done. Can I do this? How do I, how am I going to do this? But none of that's spoken. So the first time through, I just didn't get why she was going in there. And then I realized that's the clock that's that's, and she is she is her day is getting out of or watching it slip through her fingers in a kind of way and watching that that uh that frustration grow yeah she shows up at the grocery store too early um she's too late to her cafe so she's mm-hmm. missed the waitress that usually waits on her uh there's no stamps in the stamp machine i mean just it's like it's like this domino effect and uh, you know ev- everything is just completely falling apart uh, from her perspective well and then, again it, you mentioned this but it's it's all of this is like the spoon dropping it's like what she does what what, what ackerman does is finds the actual real almost like epic narrative tension in stuff that if you just said you know this person's running late which is an everyday occurrence in the moment, those things actually do feel like the most important thing. What are we going to do? We're going to be late. What? Um, but she does it without any of the tricks that movies do. I mean, again, there is no ticking clock other than the clock that she goes and looks at, and you can't even really, you don't even really notice it. Um, yeah, I, and I, I, I think, I think that is just one of the one of the brilliant things that she pulls off and does it also with us experiencing something that feels like real time. So, so it's funny to be like, this movie is, has this like propulsive running out of time feel when the movie is three hours and 20 minutes long. Like, like those things shouldn't, should be incongruent, but she makes that happen beautifully. And it really raises again, another question for me, Sam, about the nature of art and our response to art. So, I mean, why is it that we've allowed so much of film to, kind of push our buttons with things that really have no connection to our life. Whereas, I mean, as we've been talking about, I can relate much more 
to the idea that well, my my day's been thrown off because I forgot to do this or or I, I went to my favorite restaurant and they didn't have the what I wanted to eat or I got up too late. I mean, those are the things that really make up the fabric of our life. And yet, why is it that, you know, and you could argue maybe it's escapism. You want to go to the film, you want to go to a film, you want to see something that, you know, will never happen to you. I haven't been held hostage. I haven't been in a bank robbery, you know, so there's a kind of escapism in that. But I think what she's doing, like the neorealists, is really raising that question about, well, how, how does art actually connect to life? I think about Hamlet saying that art is in the mirror held up to nature. Um, and in a sense, that's that's really what she's what she's doing here. And she's and she's also at the same time, you know, we haven't talked about this as a feminist film, but at the same time, the fact that it's the life of a woman that she's highlighting. So it's not only that these domestic things are hidden, it's that these domestic things are associated with women, and that's another reason why why they're hidden. It's it's interesting that. You know, she's depicting a particular kind of woman, but the actress playing Jean, Jean is not that kind of woman, Delphine Seyrig. This is not the life that she lives as an actress. And in fact, in an interview, she talked about the fact that she had to learn how to make coffee. She did not know how to make coffee. She said if somebody came to her house and they wanted coffee, they got instant because all she did was boil water. So it's like she herself as an actress, as an actor playing that character, had to learn how to be be a domestic um and there is a fascinating documentary i didn't watch the whole thing on the criterion channel but there's a documentary that was made of the filming the filming of, of the of the movie and there's these long conversations between ackerman and Seyrig about you know what is it you want me to do and how she grapples with as an actress with actually uh depicting the the kind of character that ackerman has has uh um has imagined so it's almost as though she has to become jean dillman in order to right. play him. well yeah. and it's interesting i i also read that that um ackerman dyed Seerig's hair a particular mm. color of red so it would blend in with the wood of the apartment so it's almost so you do get this sense of like this is uh, for better and worse, this is her natural habitat. Like, like she, she's almost even invisible in her space because, you know, because you're presumably the viewer is like, well, I'm not used to seeing this in film, but like, this is, I see this every day. What's interesting about this, you know, that, so she even blends in, um, that way. Okay. Fourth thing I love about this movie. And this is where, where you've been, um, where we've been heading here is this movie kept feeling like, it was building to a climax. Mm. Um, and I use that word intentionally. Yeah. Um, uh, but I didn't know what it was going to be. Like I didn't for the first day, I thought like, Oh, is this just an interesting art film where we're going to follow this person around, Yeah, you know, like a, something that felt like documentary footage, even though it wasn't. And then once you get past the, the second um once you realize the potato or she realizes the potatoes are overboiled you know after the the second client and things start to fall apart i just kept feeling like what's something bad is going to happen something not even bad something is going to happen and i couldn't imagine what it was i kept assuming she was going to kill herself like like that I was just the, the feel i was like well okay this is this is heading somewhere and my fear was like this person who i have grown to become very comfortable with and grown to love in a kind of way. It's like, I don't want that to happen. And then when the thing happens that happens and she kills the third client, it, even when I rewatched it, it happened so fast yeah. that you're like, did that just happen? Yeah. 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 But when, the, when she was opening that package and the scissors were left in the bedroom, I did. I mean, I obviously clocked that cause you, it's hard not to. And then you're just like, the scissors is going to mean something. I think, even though not everything means something, I thought this <laughs> is, and and when that happens, I, I I it was one of the more shocking things I've ever seen in a in a movie. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I I, I mean, I gasped. It was like really, yeah. And I, and I think I think one of one of the reasons it's it's interesting you say that about it, it's building to something, Sam, because in a sense. It, it was it was hard for me to know where where we were going because on the one hand I thought this isn't the kind of a movie that is going to have the traditional signs of building to a climax 
But at the same time, you get back to the idea of it teaching you how to watch it. At the same time, there's too many of these things accumulating that they can't mean something. So, you know, and I think it really became clear to me when she couldn't make the cafe LA taste right. It's like, you know, and, and some, somebody sing, 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 uh, single that out as maybe a tedious scene that I thought, my gosh, that is, that was the, one of the best scenes. It was like, you know, what's, what's wrong? And then you realize, well, maybe there's something wrong with the coffee. Maybe there's something wrong with her. There's something wrong with her life right now. Something wrong with her day. And then when she can't rescue it by going to the cafe and say, okay, I'll go to the cafe and get a coffee. She, I don't think, think she even drinks it in the cafe because she, it's, right. it, it's, it sits there and she walks, she walks out because she's been displaced, right? Her place is taken by this woman and, and, you know, and don't, you can't, you relate to that. I mean, I got places I go where this is where I sit mm-hmm. and, and I arrive when there's somebody sitting in my spot. Don't they know that's my, that's my, that's my spot. So you're right. So I, I knew we were building somewhere. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure I was, yeah, I saw the scissors sitting there. I'm not sure. But, but when she, I, I had to rewind it because I was like, did I, did she really just do that? Um, Cause it's, it happens so quickly and, and, and almost casually, but also at the same time, kind of inevitably. Well, and, and p- part of building to that tension is something happens three times on the third day that you don't get to see the other in the other two. So one of the things you see on the, the third day is you see the sexual encounter, right? Like that, that you don't on the others, but the th- three times on that third day, you see her just sitting. Yes. And yeah. like, those are haunting scenes mm-hmm. it, and not because you're like, she is calculating some things she's going to do. Like, I don't think she thought about doing that until she did it, mm-hmm. but there is this sense of like, and this happens on the things when time gets away from you is you sometimes then just feel like, okay, well then if we throw out all the routine, what do I do if I have time? And you just see her sit like there's this, this two, one, one is in the kitchen and two are in the living room where she's just sitting in those chairs and time is passing and Ackerman does not cut away from those. And you just watch her sitting and, and you're trying to read her face. I mean, I think I love this performance. It's very, um, uh mona lisa like in some ways where I, I keep looking at her face and i'm like what what am i make what am i to make of this expression on your face um and it's not because it's blank it's because it all says too much um you know and uh and and you're watching her in those frustrated by the unstructured time that she's created for herself by maybe breaking other routines yeah, one. Uh, it's, it's funny you mentioned that about trying trying to figure out what she's thinking or uh, by looking at her face. One of the uh, articles I read connected her with two of two of our favorite films: uh, Leave Ullman and Persona, and uh, Maria Falconetti in The Passion mm-hmm. of Joe Clark. Both films that rely very much. Now, of course, uh, Ackerman eschews the close-ups that you get in those films, but and which, which is something we should mention that the notion of this film is shot almost entirely in medium and wide shot. That's part of, we talked about the film's um, respect for time, but that's part of the film's respect for space. And one of the reasons for those, uh, and I figure there's another filmmaker that we that we watched, I can't remember who talked about this, but talked about the idea that, you know, the idea of a medium shot is you don't, you don't see people only when you when you interact with people in life, you don't only see their face, you see the rest of their body. So the idea there is that you're actually kind of preserving or uh, the integrity of of time and and uh, of time as well as the integrity of space. So that's why, and I love the fact that those wide shots. It's like you know you get the shot of the park, and you're like, well, where is she? And then, oh, there she is, way down the street, coming. And and then and as you said, the camera's locked down, so she comes and then she walks and she walks in and out of the frame. And it's because space has integrity, and it's the opposite of say you know a montage editing. Uh, this is all about you don't cut space up. You actually keep space the way it actually is. Well, and 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 this is why that second cafe scene is so amazing is because the her table is at the center of the frame, and then she's forced to sit off to the side of she's in the frame, but she's mm-hmm. off to the side of it. And what's interesting is I can't help but watch the woman who's sitting there yes. drinking her coffee, smoking, reading the paper, and it's like, did she just steal Jean Dillman's movie? <laughs> like, <laughs> like this is a, she's supposed to sit there that's the middle of the frame yes, and yeah. and and the fact that they just use the same shot but but now she's 
force out of the center of it is that makes that so much more powerful and it makes you notice how um off-putting that is that she's not um that she's not at the center there but and, and it's exactly how she feels about her life mm-hmm. she's been decentered from her own life and everything is just everything feels off by by a, a, an hour right right um so uh, as i mentioned i think there's four meaningful conversations in this movie i mean there's a couple others where then we're talking about buttons and things like that which are not that that's not meaningful sure. but there's four that are maybe more traditionally meaningful conversations or at least three uh the first is the letter from her sister mm-hmm. right where we get a little bit of of a broader sense of her backstory um you know because mm-hmm. we we understand who her sister is and where she lives and that they're you know, that's where you first get the, like, you know, my husband thinks you should be married and you should remarry and all. So you, you get a little bit of that stuff. You get the first bedtime conversation with her son. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we get the story of how she met his father, why they married. Mm-hmm. Um, you also get a sense of it's, it's the one time where she expresses wanting something in life because mm-hmm. she says, you know, that her aunts wanted her to get married and she wasn't sure. And then once his business failed, she, uh, they didn't want her to marry him. And she's like, well, I wanted my own life and I wanted a child. So I married him, (laughs) you know, and it's, uh, it's such an interesting portrait of that marriage that we never get to see. And the son kind of pushes back on how miserable it might've been. And she's like, well, it, it's not, it's not everything. It's not as bad as you think too, you know, like it's this weird, uh, I don't know. I, I, I really loved that conversation. Um, and then that's where, where you get the, you know, you get this sense that her son is starting to learn about sex, mm-hmm. you know, cause he's talking about what to him, if he were a woman, what making, what making love would mean and who he would and wouldn't make love with. And, you know, she's like, well, you don't understand. And it's, and we know, why lots of parts of the reasons why she's saying you wouldn't understand because for her sex is uh a many faceted thing Um, you know so then the third conversation is the conversation with her neighbor who is voiced by Chantal Ackerman about (laughs) what to make for dinner Um, and that feels like a very meaningful conversation Mm -hmm. um and then, then we get the second conversation second bedtime conversation with the son where we're really learning about his burgeoning sexual education and the things he does and doesn't understand. Um, and these things seem significant to, um, I think the, the third client where we actually, well, the second and the third client where something is happening that is, well, we don't see the, the, the second client, but something happened there, which threw off her time. Right. Right. And then, and then we see, we get to actually see the third client. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like. Well, you know, first of all, the conversation with the son—you kind of get a little bit of a classic Oedipal con, 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 complex as he talks about, you know, the resentment he has towards his father and what the awful things his father is doing to it to his his mother. Um, but at the same time, she, you know, she remains in—I um, don't know if you want to call it a power relationship with the son, but there is a sense in which, you, as you said, the button conversation isn't momentous but the but it is it is he does say you know you're missing you're missing a button it's as though he's in that te- uh, that uh, traditional masculine role uh and even though she tells him things like no reading at the table or did you wash your hands you know she still is making uh is uh um fixing a preparing his shoes you know shining his shoes that kind of thing so i think there is a kind of an interesting male female dynamic there the conversation with the neighbor is great because um you know, this the neighbor is the opposite of Jean. She she doesn't know what she wants. She 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 can't figure out a routine for her life. You know, so she's in line for this. She doesn't know what she wants to get for dinner, and so she just orders whatever the person ahead of her orders, and it's too expensive. And she doesn't know how to fix it. Nobody really likes it, and of course, it is also veal, uh, significantly enough. So there's a really interesting contrast between the two of them. But at the same time. That's another thing that goes wrong, right? The first time the baby comes in, it's great. The baby lies on the table. Everything's fine. 
Second time the baby comes in, the hot, the stupid thing won't stop crying. It's screaming at her. Uh, I often wonder as an aside how they get children to scream like that without violating some kind of ethical law, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that aside for a minute. And, and despite everything Jean can does, she's not able to comfort the child. So it's just one more of those things that goes absolutely wrong. And then she makes the neighbor wait extra long at the door before she make, takes the child back out. So you can really see that she's losing, losing control. Well, what's interesting about the, the second time with the baby is the baby doesn't start crying until Jean does something she doesn't do the first time. It doesn't start crying until she picks it up. Picks up yeah, and, yeah. and there, you know, that makes me think about, you know, the conversations with her son. Her son is clearly growing up. He is not the little baby she wanted anymore. And so there is maybe this sense of like, oh, this is remember i don't i'm maybe i'm reading way too into this but like mm-hmm. remember when my son was like this and like that sets off this yes. thing that she can't control mm-hmm. um so i found that really interesting i love in the first conversation with the son when she's talking about meeting his father and how her sister met her husband that we also get this attached to the war right i love everything every <laughs> everything from the second half of the 20th century that attaches to world war ii i think is fascinating so there is this sense of like you know the the sister is uh is a war bride you yeah. know who, who goes away to america and you know that that was a choice and that changed her potentially her experience of life will definitely change her experience of life um and that uh jean either didn't have that option or didn't make that choice. Um, and that has left her in this particular situation. Um, let's talk about the ending of this movie. Uh, so you talked about the, 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 we talked about sort of the shock and surprise of the murder. Um, what do you make of her doing that? And then the final shot of the film, uh, how, how do you read that face at the end? Yeah. Well, first of all, I feel like um, I'm going to cheat a little bit because um, I watched one of the interviews with Chantal Ackerman. It was one of the later ones in her career. And she tells she 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 says what happened with the second client, uh, which I would not have inferred. OK, um, maybe I would have on a second viewing. Maybe you did. You did, Sam. But, you know, as you said, something happened with the second client that threw her off. And so Chantal Ackerman says in the interview, it's because she had her first orgasm with the second client. That's what I figure because it, yeah. it definitely takes longer than it's supposed to. Right. Exactly. That's why the potatoes burn. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, and as I said, maybe on a second viewing, I would have been quicker to pick that up. So, so when, so when you get to the third client, you know, so of course, when I'm watching it with the third client, I'm like, why, why is she um, denying herself this pleasure? Right, because it's quite clear she doesn't want to go where she's going, um, and that's because, as we've already seen, uh, if she begins to view her sexual encounters as a source of pleasure, um, it changes her relationship to the transaction, and it completely changes her relationship to her routine. So, what's what's interesting to me about this is that the routine is both a comfort and a source of meaning and from one perspective but from the other perspective from a from a feminist criti- from a feminist critical perspective it is in fact a trap mm-hmm. because it means that she can have no relationship to sexual pleasure she can have no relationship to her own needs as a, as a, as a, as a human being and so she has to deny those to herself so it's almost as though Ackerman has taken that kind of classic it's not exactly a, a virgin horse split, but it's the idea. It's it's the domestic woman versus the woman of pleasure. And she said, you know, this is a woman who society only enables you to choose one or the other. You know, either you have to have this domestic life or you can have a life of pleasure, but you can't have both. And so she realizes that her domestic life has, in effect, been destroyed by the promise of pleasure. And so all she can do as a result is is kill him. Um and I think at the end, uh, that's a seven-minute take. Um, I, I, I think what's happening at the end is, what is the answer? I mean, where does she go from here? She, she, she basically has no life left mm-hmm. because she's just, she's just. I mean, it's not, and it's not because she's going to go to prison for killing the guy. It's because she can't go back. 
You know, she because in, in, in a sense, her life was destroyed at, with the second client. I mean, that, that was that was the end. And then it's just a matter of it actually finally kind of playing, playing. Mm-hmm. Out. Yeah. So yeah, I don't yeah. think you know, I, I don't read remorse on her face. Um, it's just I, I just read a kind of um, uh, I wouldn't even say desperation or despair. I would say a resignation. Maybe yeah, the, 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 I watched this closely the second time and it's like there's almost a moment where you see a smile and you're like what uh-huh. you know and and and, and but may, and maybe it is like that's maybe a recognition of the trap part of it as well to be like well at least the trap is broken <laughs> you know yeah. like but that yeah i don't know like like i i loved the ending because you could have you could have not had that shot at the ending. Yeah. You know, you yeah. could have, you could have ended with the murder and it's just like, that would have been a shocking final shot. It would, you would have been like, hats off. That is great. But she's like, Nope, I've got one more thing for you. And it is seven minutes of sitting with this woman as she is contemplating meaning um in in lots and lots of ways well i i I thought about that sam you're right there um ending with the the body on the bed would have been a very conventional ending and it would have been wrong for a couple of reasons right first of all it would have said your final thought about this woman is that she's a murderer Mm -hmm. and that's that's not where you want to leave it and you do not want the final shot to be somebody who is not the main character of the film. Mm-hmm. So you have to go back significantly to the table where the terrine with the money sits. So she sits at that table because one, it's the domestic place. It's where she has the, the it's where she has the dinner with her son. It's where she does her knitting, where she does her reading. So it's the domestic site, but it's also where the money from her prostitution sits in mm-hmm. full view of her son who has no idea that that's what it is. So that table is the is the meeting point of those two parts of her life which have finally collided with each other and and essentially destroyed her life yeah yeah so uh anything else you want to talk about with this movie oh so okay two 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 things one one a little film geeky thing which is and i alluded to this earlier that um ackerman is uh, obviously she's been seen as kind of an icon of feminist uh cinema but there was also a movement in the late 60s or early 70s called structuralist cinema um and there's names that may not be familiar to many people but michael snow a canadian filmmaker still going at 94 uh, he was kind of the the leader of this movement, and it's it's basically it's a movement where in which space and time are um, privileged, and in which narrative is not as important. So there's several elements of structural cinema, but there are two in particular that you get in this film, and one is the lockdown camera, the fixed camera position. That's very very classic, and then the other is what someone's called rephotographing, which is simply the same images over and over. And so you get that in this film. So, you know, going up the elevator is another one we didn't talk mm-hmm. about. Oh, yeah. Um, I find myself counting to see how many th- to try to figure out what floor she lived on. I think she lived on the sixth floor if I counted right. Uh, but anyway, so it's like, you know, so those are those are some of the elements that she's taking from that particular non If that's a non-narrative movement, she applies it to narrative. The other really obvious thing I wanted to say when we were talking about this film, Citizen Kane, is... Um, Chantelle Ackerman was 25 years old when she made this. Oh, film. really? Yes, and Orson Welles was 25 years old when he made Citizen Kane. I just, I just think that's that's a great, uh, that's a great, great uh, coincidence, I guess. Well, I my my last takeaway because this is this has become our I think our longest episode uh, is that uh, Delphine Seerig is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean it. So I, I, I as I've said i tend towards the bb anderson role in persona um, as a performance i like better and like she has worked her way into that pantheon of like just great acting performances where because in, in the, you know e- even even if what you had said about her background wasn't true that you know she wasn't a, d- a domestic person it's like at one level you watch this and think well all she has to do is just it, the director just says well just like you know make meatloaf just do it's like that's not what like this is all of that stuff it would be so hard to do and to do it with mm-hmm. the expressions on her face to do to be that controlled and in, in yeah. like like I, it's it is 
it is a stunning performance. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I want to go back and just look at like, as people talk about the great acting performances of all time, does this one show up? Because I really do think it is. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, talk about being on camera for t- 200 minutes. Like she's yeah. on, she's, this is all her yeah. at the, at the center of it. So, so I think that was just an amazing performance. Uh, so what do you have for us uh, for next week? Well, uh, this film came out in 1975. So I started thinking about what are other films in 1975 I might want to pair this with. Famously a great year for films. <laughs> it is. It is. We've already watched uh, several months ago. We did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, for example. So I think the perfect compliment to this film is Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Oh, man. You're, that's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> oh, that is great. I am so excited for that uh barrett uh we are running out of time i think we were close to the hour mark which we've never reached before but hey this is a movie that that requires time right so thank you so much for recommending this thank you so much for having this uh for having this conversation uh if you haven't seen this movie and you listen to this i apologize but we warned you (laughs) but you gotta go see this like this is this is truly great. Um, so thank you so much. That is all the time we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Jaws in the video store. Mm-hmm.